Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Louise Epstein. Louise is the executive in residence at the Austin Technology Incubator, which is affiliated with UT Austin and a principal advisor with the Larda Institute. In both positions, Louise provides business commercialization advice to science-based startups. Prior to LARDA, Louise was the Director of University Partnerships for the Walton Family Foundation, where she crafted grants for maximum impact. While there, she wrote 12 critical components of university technology commercialization, which has served as a primer for many technology transfer offices interested in creating startups. The Waltons hired Louise from the University of Texas at Austin, where she was the founding managing director of the Innovation Center at the Cockrell School of Engineering. Louise was also a fellow at UT Austin's IC2 Institute and the entrepreneur in residence at the McCombs School of Business. In all her university work, Louise has helped faculty, researchers, and students commercialize their technology by creating startups. Prior to her time at the University of Texas, Louise was an entrepreneur and public servant. She founded and ran a distressed debt modeling, purchasing, and sale company called Charge Off Clearinghouse. Her public service included managing multi-billion dollar bond portfolios and overseeing bond sales as the director of funds management for the Texas Treasury, the Texas General Land Office, and the Texas Bond Review Board. Louise is one of the few remaining native Austinites, and in 1990, she was elected to an at-large position on the Austin City Council. Louise has a Plan 2 history degree and an MBA from the University of Texas at Austin. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Louise. Thank you, Lisa. Good to be with you. It's great having you, Louise. And thanks again for taking part in the podcast I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. And Louise, I think one of the things that makes you such a really interesting guest is that your journey to tech transfer has been rather unconventional when compared to some of our other guests that we've had on this podcast to date. Can you tell us how you went from public service to running a company and then ultimately to tech transfer? Well, I got to tell you, I think if you were looking for one word to describe my journey to tech transfer, it would be circuitous. But, you know, I love that you bring up the journey from public service to tech transfer, because to me, they are intimately related. I I think tech transfer is a public service. I agree. It's all about that. I mean, the reason we have all these federal funds for research and now to commercialize research is because of the public service that it all provides, the game-changing, world-impacting difference that these scientists can make, especially when matched with some kind of business expertise, whether that's with a startup or through licensing. But it's 
but let's get the science out of the lab so it can make a difference. It, it did its job in the lab. It taught graduates, made great new discoveries, great papers. It's time for it to have an impact. So it's all the same in my mind. So is that what resonated um, with you with tech transfer? You know, if I told you how recently it was that I didn't know what that meant, tech transfer, uh, you might be surprised. I mean, it hadn't been a part of my life. Um, but when I came to the University of Texas in the capacity to be the founding director of the Innovation Center in the engineering school, and my job was to help scientists commercialize their technology through startups, that's really my first head-to-head interaction with tech transfer. And I felt very lucky to be included in the tech transfers. Oh, I think there were bi-weekly office meetings. And um, I think they told me I was the only outsider that is not from the department included in those meetings. So I learned about tech transfer by doing it, really. So how do you think some of your time in public service help you prepare for getting involved in tech transfer? You ask good questions. <laughs> I try. You know, I think the longer you live and the more things you do, hopefully the better you're able to interact with a wider variety of people. And I think when it comes to tech transfer, in order to find the place for that technology, you really need to spread your wings and be open-minded and think out of the box to find out where it might fit. Uh, just yesterday, I was talking to one of my favorite scientists at the University of Texas, and we were talking about technology that he had worked on when I was first, you know, or I should say most recently at the University of Texas in the engineering school. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm confident that your technology works. Let's just assume that's a given. But the packaging doesn't. I said, I think you need to think industrial design because it's all about making his technology function with a product that's already being manufactured. So, you know, just putting myself in the shoes of a user or an investor or a potential partner, um, I, I think that broad background is very helpful. And apparently so, because he thought it was a great idea. And he said, I'm going to tell the tech transfer office what you said. It's like, yes, please do. So he's, he is now, you know, it was a bit of an effort to get this fantastic mechanical engineer to take off his mechanical engineering hat and put on an industrial design hat. Um, so I think, um, I mean, that's a, a good example of being able to think broadly by not being pigeonholed into anything. And, and my career, as you can tell, is anything but being pigeonholed. In fact, it might be confusing to many. It's like, well, what are you? Well, I, I can probably say now that what I do, that, that my career is about helping scientists commercialize their technology. And I feel like I have finally landed. It's like, that is exactly what I do. Sometimes it makes sense for a startup. Sometimes licensing is the way to go. And I'll be the first to tell the scientists because 
when I had a company, I would have loved it if somebody would have bought what I had and sent me checks every month. I didn't have that option. I had to start a company. Um, but anyway, the options are out there. Now, speaking of your career, uh, one of the interesting aspects of it that I d- mentioned during the intro was that you worked for the Walton Family Foundation. Can you compare for us some of the similarities and differences between working in tech transfer and versus working for a foundation? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I d- don't have enough good things to say about the Walton family and the foundation. Uh, they're amazing. And they, if if I can assume, given that I have a universe of one foundation that I've worked with, if I can, if I can generalize that, I would say foundations and donors want to make a difference with their gift with their investment. That's what it's all about. And it's it's actually a challenge because you may find a, a, a good idea, um, an admirable cause, but it's all about execution. So you've got to find the right, you know, the, the combination, whether you're making a $500 gift to an animal welfare group or making a multi-billion dollar gift to a university. It's about having impact. And and so I would say, like I said, if I can generalize, and it was certainly true for the Walton Family Foundation, the idea was to have an impact with these dollars. And I think with technology transfer, it's not just about getting it out the door and, and getting a license in place and having university revenue, although, you know, that's important. In my mind, it's about having an impact. And so I think that is a um, deeply shared value for both types of organizations. Louise, currently you're a consultant for the Larda Institute where you help scientists and their startups commercialize their research. Can you tell us more about how you do this? Yes, um, and I love it because it is, it's hands-on helping scientists make a difference. So um, Larta is, if you think of them as a think tank of 90 principal advisors, of which I am one, and Larta has come up with Let's say it's about a 50-item module, 50 modules for commercialization. And um, SBI SBIR recipients can use some of their funds for business advice. And so they contact LARTA and say, hey, we need help on this and that, you know, branding, marketing, sales strategy, web design, you know, all the things that, uh, you know, the, among the 50 items that LARTA has identified, and then LARTA will match those items with their consultants. So it's it's pretty wonderful. Uh, I mean, LARTA's done the legwork putting together this module, and the scientists check the boxes, and then I get an email from LARTA saying, hey, uh, would you help, you know, this scientific group with you know, these seven items. And something else that I really admire about the way LARTA works is usually for every scientific project, which is, let's think of them as startups, there will be three different LARTA principal advisors assigned. So I'll work on 
some pieces. There will be maybe two other people working on some other pieces. So I have the opportunity to learn from those other LARTA advisors. So it's fantastic. That's amazing. Now, is LARTA specific in a geographic area or is it does it help startups countrywide? Is there any kind of limit limitation on it? It is nationwide. The um, offices are in Los Angeles, uh, but it's nationwide. So my last client was in Maryland. Oh, that's awesome. This day and age, it doesn't matter where they are, where anybody is. Exactly. But uh, in the case of LARTA, it's always been true. So, Wow. So um, going back and talking about your time when you were at the Walton Family Foundation, you published an article on the 12 critical components of university technology commercialization. And I'm just going to list those off really quickly here. They are policy, culture, research, graduate students, tech transfer effectiveness, meaning creating IP, licensing versus startup decisions, programs to advance startups, funding, availability of CEO talent, early adopters and strategic partners, off-campus office space and affordable professional services, and an engaged business community. And for those people who haven't read the this paper, I really encourage you to. It's, it's a great paper. But uh, Louise, I wanted to explore several of these um, items with you. So maybe starting at the beginning and talking about policy, I thought one of the interesting points you made and you state that an important question to look at is whether a university's IP policies orientated towards encouraging innovation or creating fear in faculty, staffs, and startups. Can you discuss this in more detail, particularly that fear aspect that you mentioned? Sure. You know, I think it's important for faculty to interact with the real world, you know, get out of the ivory tower, interact with the real world. We see a lot, uh, and it often takes the form of business consulting or board membership. And so what I have seen before are situations where a faculty member is consulting with a company. The company hires the faculty member to consult on their own time not using any university resources and any IP that results from that relationship belongs to the university. Um, I saw this in Arkansas and I pointed it out. This this paper, uh, as you mentioned, I, I wrote when I was with the Walton Family Foundation and I meant it as a primer so that everybody was kind of on the same page, but it also was a framework for me to do an analysis of what the strengths and weaknesses of the region were. And I'll tell you, when I pointed this out, and of course this was pointed out to me by faculty at the university, when I pointed this out, very soon thereafter, the Board of Regents changed their policy because it discouraged faculty. They were, and, and what had happened was faculty were so afraid of inventing, you know, being part of inventing something with their real world counterparts, that they were so afraid of the conflict that they were inclined and they did take leave of absence from the university and leave the university. It's like, that's the last thing you want. These, these top faculty who are in demand by industry, 
Boy, those are those are like the top people you want to keep. You know, the people on the cutting edge, the you know, the people who tend to be great teachers because they're excited about the work they're doing, not just because they've read the most recent article. So so that's a good example of policy and and how just a simple policy change can really energize and transform. Uh, the faculty and their attitude towards innovation. I cannot tell you how many phone calls I got from excited faculty who felt like this huge dark cloud had been lifted because they were free to consult on their own time. And again, this is, you know, not using any university resources and on their own time. You know, it's, um, when this subject came up, a couple of people said to me, well, you know, I've worked in the private sector and while I was an employee at, you know, X, name a company, anything I invented belonged to that company. It's like, that makes total sense to me. That is so different than a university person who, in fact, why are they given their own designated time? I mean, they have, most universities have a policy where you have X where you can do what you want. Well, what did they think people were going to be doing? And what is a value to the university and to the students and, and to the idea of having an impact on the world and fostering innovation? So anyway, it, it made sense and the Board of Regents thought so too. And so they're off and running in, in uh, energized. That's awesome. And I felt you made another really good point in that same portion of your paper where you talk about that universities' policies should also encourage their faculty to co collaborate, even if their names don't appear on a patent, and that faculty should embrace and not fear each other when they're working on a patentable project. Do you have an example, or are you aware of an example where a university had such policies to encourage such collaboration? You know, I don't know about a policies per se, but um, just as some people have this sense, well, I'm not going to do it unless you pay me, you know, which is, I, I call that a taker policy, somebody who doesn't understand the greater value. Um, I do know of instances, I mean, faculty have told me where they felt like they had to close the door if they were talking business. Uh, because they would get in trouble if they were talking business. Sure, yeah. So I think, you know, having, ideally, the doors should always be open so students outside waiting for office hours can hear what happens in real life when a faculty member is on the phone with industry and faculty walking down the hall hearing something might have something to contribute. You know, it's so often the case that not only are university universities siloed and departments siloed, but within the departments, faculty, I, and everybody has examples of this, I know I do, faculty don't know what the person in the office next door is working on. And they're usually, the, I mean, they're missing out on great resources. So it would be great if there was this entire People could, in effect, get credit for being collaborative, even if their name's not on a patent. They, you know, that's that's part of building the university community. 
Now, moving on and talking about culture, in your paper, you pose four questions. The first is, how does the university's culture impact the development of IP and its transfer to the outside world? Second, are commercial results encouraged or celebrated? Third, are commercial successful commercial results promoted in the university media? And then finally, are they included as part of the matrix in determining raises, promotion, and tenure? Can you talk a little bit about each one of these and your recommendations for each? Sure. And uh, gosh, you know, this paper, which I haven't read for a while, it's on my LinkedIn page and people are certainly invited to download it from there. Um, I think if we look at culture at a university and we just take a football team as an example, how is the football team and the players treated? How is the coach celebrating? Um, how many articles are written, you know, on the university's website, in the student newspaper? I mean, what's going on there? And compare that to what, oh, to compare that to top scientists who are inventing things, who are starting companies. I, I mean, what's the story there? So. It would be nice if we could celebrate in all the avenues that we have the successes of the tennis team, the women's volleyball team, scientists, startup founders. Um, let's celebrate them all. If they're at a university, presumably there's a reason they're there and they're valued. It's, and it's like, okay, well, if somebody's coming up for tenure, are there patents, startups, licensing, how are they valued? Are, are they in the matrix somewhere? Or is creating a startup considered a, a sideshow, a, a something that takes away from what a faculty member should be doing with this time? That kind of thing. That makes sense. So turning now to graduate students, you state in your paper that these students, as well as postdoctoral fellows, are often and usually ideally the founders of startups out of PI's labs. You've worked with a lot of students during your career. Can you tell us your experience in this regard? Sure. And I would say one of the foundations behind that statement is that we don't want the faculty members to leave the university to start a company. We want the faculty members to stay at the university and uh, we like to say and breed more innovative, entrepreneurial minded graduate students. So keep the faculty member there. And believe me, if we don't have that thought, then universities aren't going to look very favorably towards startups. They're going to view startups as a way to lose their faculty members. We can't have that. But their, their postdocs, their graduate students, are intimately familiar with the technology. They're a natural for leaving, you know, when the technology gets funded, or they're a natural founder of a startup. That said, they normally don't have the business experience 
to run a startup. So in this model, which really Robert Langer pioneered, the postdoc goes with the startup. The investors who fund the startup bring in what we call adult supervision, meaning a sophisticated, experienced CEO to run the company, but they're working hand in hand with the scientists who worked on the technology. So that's really important. And meanwhile, Robert Langer's in his lab creating more of these amazing scientists and technology and can continue to advise the company on scientific matters. So that's that's pretty much the model. I, I really don't mean to imply that the graduate student has the wherewithal to run a company because they usually don't. And it doesn't matter if they've got an MBA, you, you know, it's, you need experience. And in the in days past, we used to refer to the appropriate CEO as somebody who was streetable, meaning Wall Streetable. Wall Street would recognize them. But we need experienced CEOs running companies. And speaking of startups, uh, you've helped create a lot of startups during your career. What thoughts do you have for university tech transfer offices when it comes to making a licensing versus a startup decision? Well, Many universities have gone to an approach which I really admire, which is let the faculty member decide. I mean, they want to keep the faculty members happy, and you can't argue with that. And a faculty member may have a graduate student who's just chomping at the bit to start a company. I think in the last few years, tech transfer offices have developed a sophisticated way to let the faculty member do what he or she wants. Like, okay, you want to start a company with your graduate student? Okay, you can do that. But you have this much runway time to raise X dollars in order to execute the option on the technology. So in my mind, that's a perfect situation. It's like, do it, but you have, you know, and they're right. You have to raise money in order to make it, the company work. Absolutely. And speaking of which, um, what programs do you generally recommend to the startups you work with to help facilitate their advancement? Well, I'm a big NSF i fan and uh, was really honored and I'm looking forward to serving as an adjunct faculty member in my first i um cohort. In a, in a couple of weeks. Um, so many universities, I think, are now developing programs, but they, I like to start out with, first of all, get your work with the scientists on a pitch deck. And it's not that the pitch deck, you know, doing that is something that they can use right now to raise money, but a pitch deck forces the scientists to think about specific things. So it's a way of organizing thoughts and impressing and communicating your technology to somebody who's not in your field. So I think pitch deck competitions are great. Um, I think also while I'm using the word competition, I'll say I have seen 
I have seen teams who go from competition to competition to competition where it's an end in itself and they never get on with the business of starting a company. A competition should be a means to an end. And I know at the University of Texas, we had what we called startup studios where three or four teams every month would present their pitch to an audience of faculty and business leaders. The idea of them making their pitch in front of faculty, the idea was that it could inspire other faculty to do it. You know, they could watch their colleagues and they could watch their colleagues stumble and struggle and watch their colleagues become students, actually. Um, And then the business community component is ever critical. Business communities always want to know what their local university is doing. And and there's no better elevator talk, cocktail language talk than I was at the university last night and I saw four teams make pitches and this one was especially interesting and, and having somebody outside the university give their elevator speech regarding the pitch they went to. And when the person says, well, what were you doing there? The answer should be, well, key, you know, Key community leaders are brought in to see if they can provide resources to advance the university's technology. So, again, it's about bridging town and gown. You know, so so that program, that pitch deck, you can call it a competition. In our case, it was a showcase. Um, and then another program. So we talked about iCoral. We talked about pitch decks. Um, another program we called Entrepreneurial Advisors. So in a perfect world, these are CEOs on the shelf looking for their next gig and a skilled person, used to be me, would match them to startups and hopefully they would run off into the sunset together. And we did have that experience. Sometimes they didn't, but Meanwhile, the startup got some valuable business advice. I mean, anything that helps a a university startup hear from somebody outside of their world, that's a good thing. So so anyway, those are are just a few few opportunities. And continuing on the topic of funding, what are some first or early commercialization funds that are often available to startups that you like to recommend? Wow. Well, um, obviously, i is a tremendous source. So that NSF program, um, if somebody, a, a team succeeds through a regional model, they get $50,000 to, to participate in the national scene. And, if, and during that with that $50,000, they're supposed to interview a bunch of customers. So it all advances a cause. It keeps the team together moving forward. I like to say marching forward. And then I think when NSF sees the results of a particular team's experience with i well, now NSF knows that team. So when that, that team now startup applies for SBIR funds, NSF will say to themselves, perhaps, oh, yeah, I remember those people. We were very impressed with those people. So that's a win-win situation. The um, 
Another program that we created at the University of Texas that was based on what MIT was doing, and it's always a good idea to just look at whatever MIT is doing and do your version of that. That's a good start, and, and that's what we did, is we created a GAP funding program. What is GAP? It is that valley of death between research and commercialization where, apart from i there's no money. Yeah. It's where good ideas go to die. You know, they can maybe they can if they can get i they're on the right, you know, into i they're on the right path. But after that, if they, you know, even if they are successful at getting SBIR funding, there's going to be a gap, like maybe let's just say a year and a half. How do you keep that uh, graduate student employed, interested, how do you keep the whole that whole business of a startup marching forward? Even if it's licensing, you know, I mean, even if it's technology that you intend to license, the more you can do to de-risk it, the more valuable it becomes. Absolutely. So I think it's a win-win. And I think universities are going more and more to developing a gap funding program. Um, in my mind, the, the challenge with gap funding is that in, in the normal mode, donors do not get equity. It's a charitable donation that they're making. Um, and that's a challenge. Um, but you got to start somewhere. And what was surprising, and it's certainly what we saw at UT, and it was MIT's experience, we gave grants from 5000 to 50000 and usually the grants we made that were $20,000 or less had the biggest impact. Interesting. Indeed. I mean, who knew? So, I mean, I would go to uh, departmental advisory boards, you know, go to your engineering advisory board, your chemistry advisory board. If they got 20 members, ask everybody to contribute a thousand dollars for this gap funding program. And they can share in the excitement of, of, of watching the technology move forward and hopefully offer more than their bucks. Hopefully also offer the assistance that these sophisticated board members have available. Now, in your article, you talk about the need for startups to have the best CEO, namely someone who's led a startup, successfully raised capital, and has experience in acquiring and managing customers or managing a team and has done so. Can you talk about how startups can find such CEOs and the benefit of having them rather than relying on the faculty member or maybe a newly minted MBA, for example? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this... um we found successful or, you know, the right CEOs for startups by creating this entrepreneurial advisory program. So we would ask people, you know, these CEOs on the shelf to volunteer their time and to encourage them to engage in this terrible behavior on their part. We put them on our website. And it was such a kick to see that they put that on their LinkedIn page. So we, again, this goes back to celebrating a football team and the coaches and everybody. We want to put these entrepreneurial advisors, you know, promote them, make them famous. 
And uh, anyway, that's the ideal situation. And there are plenty of them. Sometimes you can catch um, early retirees, um, you know, in, in a town like Austin has become, there's a lot of them, but there are people, there are valuable people everywhere. And, you know, going back to a tennis example, it's like, you always want to play tennis with somebody who's better than you are. Well, in the case of business experience, almost anybody with any level of experience is going to offer, be able to offer a lot to a startup that they don't already have. Now, your article also mentions the importance of first clients and customers for the startup. Can you talk about this point in a little bit more detail? Sure. Um, You know, inventors like to invent things. They like to solve problems, some of which nobody's ever heard of or thought it was a problem. You know, ideally, you're solving a problem that is nagging at somebody, somebody who wants a problem to be solved. Sometimes there are kind of big problems that nobody's really thought of solving. So if we can connect inventors to be thinking, okay, who would want this? And how many, how many of those are there? You know, I met with an inventor early on who had what seemed like a fabulous solution to a problem. I said, well, this is really cool. How many of these are there to solve? I mean, you know, of this, this retrofitting contraption that you've come up with, how many uses does it have? And they said, in America? I was like, yeah, let's start with America. It's like a four. Ooh. Okay, that's tough. You know, it's a major university. So you want to have enough customers, you know, just getting people to start thinking about customers and also competitiveness. Okay, so you know it's this has got a gazillion customers. How much is your solution going to cost? And why is somebody going to select yours, even if it costs less or if it costs more? What's so special about your solution? So when I'm talking about early customers, early adopters, it's just it's like, let's think of users and and where in your universe do you envision intersecting with them? I mean, it's nice if you're in a community where you've actually built something where you can make a phone call and drive an hour and run into a couple of customers. That's kind of a nice situation. Um, and believe me, when you're a brand new company creating something, your customer may want to know, <laughs> basically know where you live so he can come and find you and bring you in to solve a problem that you inadvertently created. Now, in your paper, you also talk about the need for and the importance of off-campus office space as well as affordable professional services for startups. Can you discuss these points in a little more detail as well? Yes. So let's talk about off-campus office space. Well, I'm, I mean, my background is with a publicly funded university. Well, you can't use public funds for private use. So at some point in the, it's easy to think of developing a technology, you know, up to a patent level at a university. You're working with the graduate students, the university's going to own the patent anyway. Um, But it's like, at what point 
Is it no longer a university project? Is it your startup? I mean, you can't do that on campus. So where are you going to do it? And and how much space do you need? So this is very important. If you're building something that has to be on top of a huge building, this is a big challenge. So you've got to find uh, what we like to call an IP-free zone where you can, you know, your business people can come, you can meet with investors, you can continue to build your widgets. Maybe you can explore a relationship with the university where um, you're renting lab space or you're getting grants that go to the university and you can evolve your technology there because you know you've got this grant i i can't stress enough the importance of transparency and disclosure with your university start early because you don't want to be late you don't want to mad at you they may not know the answer when you start early but if you you got to go make friends with whatever office, you know, from the technology transfer office and any other offices so that um, you're on the right side of that discussion always. Now, can you also talk about the importance of an engaged business community and how they need to be organized in a way, particularly early on, to interact with a university startups? Sure. And, you know, this We've talked about in some other ways, and it's so important. I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up again. The business community, if you, let's just call the business community the Chamber of Commerce, okay? And I will say we interacted with the Chamber of Commerce a lot. The Chamber is going to know everybody. They may know early adopters. They may know somebody who is in between positions. Uh, that your chamber of commerce should be a tremendous source of resources and contacts for your startup. And the chamber is always looking for a way to provide value to its customers. So in the, in the case of uh, these startup studios that we created, um, I should say the we is Bob Metcalf and I, um, we invited, we told the chamber who was coming, you know, what their technology was, you know, who was presenting. And the chamber would send out special invitations. They would handpick who would receive them. So you can see how that's a big value that the chamber is offering. And it's a huge value to the startup to be presenting in front of a room full of people who might be able to help them. So it's, it's critical. This is not optional. It's, it's critical. Absolutely. And just really quickly before we move on to our next question, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with Bob Metcalf, can you just tell our listeners who he is? I mean, you and I both know him. He's a wonderful man. He is an incredible man. So if you look up Robert Metcalf, he invented Ethernet. So we are having this discussion today. Just about everything we're doing, we could not be doing if Bob had not invented Ethernet. <laughs> 
and he is professor of innovation at the University of Texas. And I had the tremendous, really lifetime honor of working with him for four years when he decided to create the Innovation Center at the University of Texas, and he brought me in as the managing director. So uh, the most in- incredible, one I have to say, one of the most to stay married, one of the most incredible people I've ever met, and, and certainly one of the nicest, most giving of human beings. Yeah, and extremely down to earth. Um because you introduced me to him and he he's just such a humble individual. He's really just a wonderful person. I, I echo everything you say. Yes, I, sh- I should have prefaced this whole discussion by saying Bob Metcalf taught me everything I know. <laughs> I'm sure he'll really appreciate that. So, Louise, as my final question, I wanted to have you reflect a little bit. And you've had an absolutely incredible career in the tech transfer and startup space and looking at it and looking back at it, what has it meant to you? Wow. Well, I want, with my life, I want to make a difference. And I feel fortunate that in some areas I know I have made a difference. And this is, if I can be successful in helping startups commercialize their technology, I feel that it is the the way for me to make the broadest difference, the the biggest impact on our world. And I have absolutely no science background. So, you know, I I feel like I'm a good match for these scientists. I mean, I, I get thrilled when they explain to me what they're doing and then they become humble when I ask them the simple questions that I, as a business person, ask them, you know, who's going to buy it and why? Um, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm in the right place with my skill set, which I, like, I identify as business expertise. Um, to be able to work with scientists is, is so, so wonderful. and. I hope it enables me to have a positive impact on the world. Well, I think you definitely have. So thank you for all your hard work. So Louise, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Ah, they can. uh, Thanks for asking. My email is epsteinlouise at gmail.com. No hyphens and no spaces. They can also find me on LinkedIn where they can download this uh, paper, 12 Critical Components of University Technology Commercialization, which you referenced so much. Um, And I look forward to hearing from any and all of them. And Lisa, it's just so great being with you. Oh, likewise. Thanks so much again, Louise. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, 
corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.